0: This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks and this is a SwissInfo.ch production. From the world's humanitarian capital, we explore the challenges facing our planet. Whether it's migration or climate change, human rights or global health, I'll be taking you behind the scenes for some straight talk with the people facing up to those challenges. Welcome to Inside Geneva. In today's programme... Another Friday of anti-government protests. This time they were dedicated to Syrian women.
1: These were modernists. Democratic youth who wanted to change the Arab world.
2: The scenes are unprecedented, day after day of protest. Syrians now demanding what Tunisians and Egyptians have just won. The incredulity started with Tunisia and after it moved to Egypt and after we had Libya and after it moved to Syria. People of Dara, these men shout... Your blood is ours.
0: The war in Syria has entered its 10th year. How did the world allow such a brutal conflict to last so long? What mistakes were made? Were opportunities for peace missed? And did we expect too much of humanitarian workers?
1: Syria was a real setback where these besiegments, the bombing of hospitals... The bombing of schools, the bombing of bread lines, it it was horrific.
2: In recent history, I don't think there is something comparable to the disaster in, in Syria. What you see, it's apocalyptic.
0: Because of the coronavirus pandemic, we can't have a studio discussion today. Instead, I've been talking to two people who've been deeply involved in the diplomatic and humanitarian efforts for Syria. Jan Eglund, now head of the Norwegian Refugee Council and for several years chair of the UN's humanitarian task force for Syria.
1: Could it have ended earlier? Yes, I mean, the, this is perhaps one of the major mistakes of Syria. Little by little, too many started to treat it as if it was some kind of a continuous natural disaster. This was man made from A to Z.
0: And Fabrizio Carboni. Director of Operations for the Middle East with the International Committee of the Red Cross.
2: As humanitarian, we have to be always very humble and never forget why we were created. We were created to preserve human life and dignity. That's why we are a neutral organisation. That's why we don't comment on who's wrong and who's right.
0: I began by asking Jan Eglund what his feelings were when he heard about the first demonstrations in Syria in the spring of 2011.
1: When it started, I was in uh, academic work uh, through the Norwegian Institute for International Affairs and studied the Arab Spring as something very positive, really. These were uh, modernists, democratic youth who wanted to change the Arab world. And I must confess, I was, uh, I was optimistic. I saw this uh, in the long line of transition from uh, dictatorships, from authoritarian regimes to more democratic, more human rights oriented uh, societies. And then came the backlash. And I even visited in February, 2013, Aleppo, which was already then a divided city. I met with uh, guerrillas and, uh, of, of, of many different types. We saw the Nusra Front growing up at the time. And it was very clear that this was becoming a very polarized, very bitter civil war.
0: But you touched on it there. When it started, you... At first, thought this could be almost positive.
1: The, this was positive. I mean, what happened in Tunis, Egypt, and then later with, uh, with Syria and with uh, Yemen and elsewhere was positive. These were, were students I could identify with. Uh, these were, uh, you know, intellectuals. These were people who were campaigning for human rights. They went to the streets and they were met with bullets They were met with repression, and little by little they radicalised and uh, extremists joined, and there was armed uprisings, and it basically became uh, became, um, a a civil war. Thousands of protesters in this city have been killed.
0: As the conflict escalated, aid agencies prepared to support civilians caught up in it. The ICRC's Fabrizio Carboni was posted to Lebanon. Did he think then that this would be such a long conflict?
2: When it started, no, in the first months, no. But when I reached Lebanon, and I have a very clear memory of in a night, during the night, we had, uh, I think it was 60,000 people who crossed into Lebanon and I have a very clear memory when I saw these people arriving, you know, and they just had their pyjamas on them. I mean it was just massive and abrupt and violent. I saw them them getting there and, and I say, okay, here we are in something different.
0: The war became, as Jan Eglund explains, ever more complicated and ever more intractable.
1: It became also proxy war. This was the place where Saudi and Iran met, Sunni and Shia met, and you know foreigners were willing to fight each other to the last Syrian. I, I, it's been heartbreaking. Uh, I followed now Syria every single week for ten years, and it's been it's been heart wrenching because it became in many places. Uh, bad guy against bad guy, but there were so many good civilians in between them that suffered in this crossfire.
0: The ICRC, Fabrizio Carboni remembers, began to prepare for the long haul.
2: After, I would say, a year or two, it was clear that there was no clear way out of this. You had so many contradicting uh narrative opposing each other that it was hard to see how you can reconcile all those narratives all the parties to the violence and the conflict in in syria it's it's a survival narrative and therefore you have uh, what we have in in front of us which is uh a tragedy which has no, uh, in recent history, I don't think there is something comparable to the disaster in, in Syria. I, I was there last week. I, I went from from uh, Damascus, you cross the, you know, the, the suburbs of, of Damascus, totally destroyed. And after you go to Oms and after Aleppo, what you see, it's apocalyptic. It's 20 years that I'm working in, in the humanitarian fields. And I never, ever saw or see something so massive. Their impact on Aleppo's densely packed civilian neighbourhoods is devastating.
0: Syria's conflict was being fought with no heed to the laws of war the ICRC tries to uphold, as if the fundamental principles adopted after the horrors of World War II had been abandoned.
2: I visited the old city of Aleppo, you know, the souk of Aleppo, which is not just an historical center for Syria. This is the common history of humanity. The old souk, which has hundreds, if not thousands of years of history, it was totally destroyed. You know, I mean, you have to see this. It, it, it's something which is breathtaking. And I was there with my Syrian colleagues from Aleppo, and almost all of them were crying. You know, we were walking into this destroyed souk, and they were all crying. And at one stage, we reached the spice market, which was totally destroyed. But there was still the smell of spices. You know, there was nothing left. There was only burned stones, collapsed buildings all around But the the smell of those spices which were stored for thousands of years in those places was still there. It's something which characterised, I think, the, the conflict in Syria. There was no limit. There is no limit. And that's to reach your objective, you're ready to destroy even your own history, who you are.
0: How do you actually keep calm? not lose your temper even when you're talking to people who you know are allowing children to starve to death inside a besieged town.
2: You, you keep your eyes on the ball, I would say. You keep your eyes on the final objective, which is to have access at all costs. You might have an action, it's not about you. You, know, you have to swallow things I would never accept in my private life, but I would accept it in my professional life, as you may tell an actor, because I need to get there, and it's not about my pride, it's not about my how I see myself if I have to listen to somebody telling me things which I know are no uh just lies, okay, I accept it if I can move the lines and if I can get something to the people.
0: Ice has now gripped the town of Madaya, adding to the siege and starvation. Trucks carrying food and medicine finally arrive in Madaya. While aid workers in Syria tried again and again to get food and medicines into the desperate civilians in besieged towns, in Geneva, Jan Eglund, as chair of the UN's humanitarian task force, tried to persuade the warring parties to show mercy.
1: I remember it was, I mean, it was too much at times, really. It was, uh, you know, sitting up at 2 a.m. and, and then again at 6 a.m. to ha- have phone calls on, uh, regarding the fall of, of the besieged areas in Aleppo, the extreme drama of people starving to death in besieged areas. We were able to have this diplomatic activity that was able to have some progress. It was because children had starved to death in some of the besieged areas. Within 72 hours after we initiated the work of this humanitarian task force, convoys was rolling, going into besieged areas. A besiegement really is, is the Middle Ages. It means that an army is starving out those armed opposition fighters inside an urban area, and they seem to not care that they also starve out women and children. That is a war crime, and we were able to some extent to get through, but we were not able to lift the besiegement. There were only small step forwards and many, many setbacks. Do you
0: think the respect for I mean, you mentioned war crimes. Do you think the respect for international law has also taken a real beating over the last 10 years?
1: Yes, I, I fear that happened in, in Syria. Again, the long line should be that we are increasingly adhering to the laws of civilization and the laws of war, human rights conventions and so on, as we become you know, more sophisticated as civilizations. Syria was a real setback where these besiegements, the bombing of hospitals, the bombing of schools, the bombing of bread lines, it it was horrific.
0: Just coming back to the mention of war crimes, do you anticipate, do you hope for a tribunal, for prosecutions, would you... For example, see yourself
1: testifying. Well, I hope for accountability. Yes, because if there is impunity, you know, uh, why would warlords anywhere really shield civilians, follow the rules, not kill uh, their uh, prisoners of war? But um, no, I don't see myself as a, uh, a witness because I'm a humanitarian. Humanitarians again have to try to not be part of processes that can be easily politicized we try to be neutral and impartial and independent but uh, yes i'm glad that there are many documenting the war crimes and i hope for an hour of accountability i don't like anyone getting away with murder
0: they are the people no country wants the families of isis Our hall is the largest, now holding nearly 75,000 people." With every passing year, the war became more fragmented, more cruel. The attempts to bring peace had faded, overtaken by a coalition to defeat Islamic State. Once again, civilians were in the firing line. When the last ISIS town in Syria fell, Fabrizio Carboni was one of the first aid workers allowed into Al Hol camp where women and children some of them the wives and children of foreign fighters were being held
2: all my life i will remember entering into this camp where you had a transit area where all the people arrived and um, there was a mother who was laying she she was very weak she she was dying and you had around her six of several children looking at her. And um, as a father, to see those children helpless, seeing probably their mother dying in front of them, it's something I will carry all all my life because it represents an aspect of war and conflict which uh, we often don't see. Because it's moving, but it's unspectacular. It's not the bombing of Mosul. It's not the, the the big explosion. It's not the the movement of troops. It's not loud. It's it, it's very quiet. It's no movement. People staying still. If you don't pay attention, you don't even realize what's happening. And and this is for me another memory of Syria, which will stay with me because this scene of children seeing their mother dying slowly, I'm sure it was repeated hundreds, if not thousands, of times in the country.
0: Some of the developed countries who taught the loudest about human rights really seemed to to wash their hands of their citizens and the children in those camps.
2: Oh, it's... it's... It's uh, for us as humanitarian actors, it's it's devastating because we defend values, which are the the minimum, you know, actually the, the humanitarian value, it's very, it's a bare minimum. It's just, you know, you can't kill people out of combat, people out of combat when wounded should be protected. And and we have special emphasis on children, on women. I mean, nothing spectacular, nothing above the bare minimum. And to, for us to promote those values, and to defend those values, we need th- those values to be shared. And when you have states who for decades not just promoted those values, but lectured other states about those values. When those very same states lecturing the rest of the world are themselves affected by violence, are themselves affected by conflict, and suddenly they say, yes, you know what? We said that below 18 years old, children in conflict are victims. But in our case, Actually no. No, because we are in an exceptional situation. That's devastating for our credibility, for the credibility of the rules and, and the values we defend, which we should never forget. Were developed mainly after after the Second World War. You know, it doesn't come out of just, you know, fantasy from from, from enlightened people. No, it's the result of a deadly and tragic history and we tend to forget it.
0: All those peace negotiations in Geneva did not save that mother or thousands like her. Arriving at the UN's Geneva headquarters, the Russian foreign minister and US secretary of state began a second day of talks with... The first two or three rounds of talks began with a sense of optimism in a bright media spotlight. It's been, sadly, another week of setbacks when it comes to finding peace in Syria. Now, years later... Whatever half hearted discussions do take place, hardly rate a mention. Does Jan Eglund think there was ever a real chance to bring the conflict to an end?
1: Could it have ended earlier? Yes. I mean, this is perhaps one of the major mistakes of Syria. Little by little, too many started to treat it as if it was some kind of a continuous natural disaster, we cannot really do it uh, except look at it and feel pity for the victims of the natural disaster. This was man-made from A to Z. In Syria, I would really blame Russia and Iran, perhaps also some of the other regional powers, the Gulf countries, uh, Turkey, etc., for bringing fuel to the fire. Certainly the, the, the government, later on those extremists who joined the armed opposition groups. I mean, there, there's a lot of blame to go around here. It's Simply all of us who worked to end it were too weak compared to all of those who added fuel to the fire.
0: Do you think there were opportunities missed?
1: There was one seminal opportunity, and that was the Kofi Annan plan, 2014, wasn't it? Which, in my view, was a step-by-step excellent approach to end it with uh, elections, constitutional reform, uh, minority protection, all sorts of good things, really. At that point, Russia, the United States, Iran, Turkey, the Gulf countries should have said to each other, we need to pull through this plan. We are supporting competing horses in this race, but we're playing with fire. Let's drag them to the table. Let's convince them to uh, agree on the Kofi Annan plan. That was the lost opportunity. And and, I, I will blame forever the leaders at that time that they didn't help it be realized.
0: To Syria now, where more than a dozen people, including children, have been killed in the latest round of airstrikes in Idlib. Turkish forces supporting the rebels. And so the war continues. Millions of civilians are crammed into Idlib, the last remaining area of Syria still in rebel hands. Once again, the aid agencies are pleading for restraint and pleading for access. There is no question, says Fabrizio Carboni, of giving up.
2: It's the nature of our work. As humanitarian, we have to be always very humble and never forget why we were created. And, and I believe that sometimes we tend to forget it. Sometimes um, we, we lack, in my view, and that's my very personal opinion, we, we lack humility. We were created to preserve human life and dignity while... A political process or whatever process would provide peace and stability to a place. That's why we are a neutral organization. That's why we don't you know, comment on who's wrong and who's right. So when we join or when people decide to join a humanitarian action, they should be clear about the intention. If it's peace in the world, that's the wrong job. If it's to preserve the basic minimum and fight every day, to preserve the dignity and life of people that's what we are it's a tough job with moments of of grace but when we manage to do something it's really uh, something which compensates very often the the frustration you know when we manage to have the food going into some places it's such a such a reward
0: but what when the history books are written will be said about the united nations about its efforts to bring peace to Syria and the attempts by humanitarian agencies based in Geneva to help civilians. The last word goes to Jan Eglund.
1: It was unsuccessful in the sense of being able to protect civilians from horrors. That's a a horrific failure for all of us. But the main blame on those who carried the guns and who did the crimes and those who supported them. In terms of how many people got their daily bread, their health services, the disease control, much of this humanitarian work have been able to save millions. So let's also remember against all the odds, tens of thousands of humanitarian workers most of them Syrians, working for other Syrians, led and coordinated by humanitarians in Geneva and elsewhere. And I think they should be proud of that. Even though there was a war lasting for 10 years and the diplomats and the politicians failed us.
0: And that's all from Inside Geneva for this week. A reminder, this is a Swissinfo.ch production. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, Thank you for listening. And a reminder just before you go that you can hear more episodes of the Inside Geneva podcast series, including an in-depth documentary on the United Nations at 75. To subscribe to Inside Geneva, just go to Swissinfo.ch forward slash ENG forward slash Inside Geneva. Join us again next time, and thank you all for listening.
2: Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.